I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 14. Uh, so in chapters 8 and 9, we've been talking a lot about giving, haven't we? Uh, we've talked about how giving connects to forgiveness and how giving helps us give up our jealous judgments of others and trust in God's wisdom. We've talked about how God uses our fellow Christians and our weekly giving and our worship to help us restart our giving practice if it's fallen by the wayside. And we've also talked about how God designed church giving to teach us how to use money well. That is how to use it for the kingdom of God and for the blessing and joy of other people because using money well is important to how the image of Christ is formed and expressed in us. And let's just say, like, that's a lot of things from one and a half chapters, isn't it? Uh, we have one more thing to add before we transition with Paul to, in chapter 10 to start thinking about the nature of authority in the church. Here it is. Using our money to care for the poor is part of our righteousness. Using our money to care for the poor is part of our righteousness. Now, we're going to unpack that. We're going to talk a little bit about how it connects to the righteousness Jesus gives us because I know how uncomfortable it is for us Protestants to talk about our righteousness. Like, I feel that same uncomfortableness as well. Uh, but the reality is, when Paul quotes from Psalm 112, verse 9 in our passage, which will be familiar to almost all of us because we use it as our giving practice passage every couple of months, when Paul says, He has distributed freely to the poor, or he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. The person Psalm 112 is talking about is not God. It's the person who follows God. It's the Christian living in obedience to Jesus' commands to give to the poor whose righteousness is said to endure forever. And as we'll talk about, what that means practically for us is that God uses the righteousness of our giving to the poor as a way to impact or change the world for the gospel of Jesus. And that's why you're going to hear God will reap from them a harvest of love and prayer and praise. And I hope you're interested in all of this uh, because that's the entire sermon right there. Uh, so let's read 2 Corinthians 9, 6-14. We'll pray, and then we'll drill down on these things by looking at God's joy and cheerful giving, God's plan to sow our righteousness, and then finally God's plan to harvest praise. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 6. Let's give now our full attention to God's word. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. 
you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, which you have given, we know, to shape us more into the image of Christ. And Lord, we, we want that. And so we pray that your spirit now would go out with your word and would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of all of our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may they all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so the first thing we're going to look at is God's joy in cheerful giving. Paul is continuing with the point that we looked at more in depth last week, which is that when he arrives with some Christians from Macedonia, that is Christians from Philippi and Ephesus, uh, to, to take uh, the Corinthians part of the diaconal offering that they promised to the church in Jerusalem, that he wants that offering from the Corinthians to be ready as a willing gift and not as, as he says, an exaction uh, Paul wants this to be a mutual celebration of God's generosity flowing through the saints in Corinth and not a shame-filled, hurtful, humiliating struggle to get the Corinthians to follow through with their promise to help the poor and needy in the church in Jerusalem. And we, we talked about the things that Paul did to make that happen. And if you're interested about that, I would invite you to go back and listen to the sermon from last week. But now... Paul wants them to understand that this offering isn't only about the Corinthians and their good and their growth, which he's talked about a lot, right? Much of what Paul has said has been about, hey, this is good for you. This helps you. This, this empowers forgiveness. This helps you give, give up sin. But now Paul wants to say that this offering is also about the church's good and the world's good and even God's joy in them. Paul is here saying it's not only good for you, it's good for the church. It's good for the surrounding world. And if I can put it this way for a moment, it's good for God. Because as Paul says in verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. And a couple of things about Paul's statement in verse 7 there that God loves a cheerful giver, I want to say. The first is this appears to be a reference to Exodus chapter 25. And I know that I say I don't want to get into the weeds most Sundays. This Sunday, we're going to go into the weeds. Um, because this is important to why Paul and Titus think the way they do about these offerings and about how offerings work in the church of Jesus. It's going to be a short trek into the weeds, but we're going there. Okay, so in that part of Exodus, Exodus 25, God has laid out the design for the tabernacle. Which, is, which, kids, is the big tent where everyone worshiped God before they made the temple. The design of the tabernacle is designed to be a recreation or a representation of the Garden of Eden. 
So the top of the tent is made of blue fabric, signifying the sky. The tables that held the offerings that Israel brought, the bread of the presence, which show that God cares for them, uh, the candles, which symbolize the, the living presence of God who gives light to his people, and also I think symbolizes the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the heavenly lights that God gave so we could walk around in the day and the night. Like Those tables are all decorated with trees and flowers and animals from the garden. The water basins that Israel washed in before coming to worship, they all represent the streams of water and life that flowed from the rivers that are said to flow out of Eden. The Ark of the Covenant, which has the angels on the lid, which maybe represented the angels who were placed at the entrance of the garden after Adam and Eve sinned. And if that's the case, it would show that you know, we need Jesus to come into God's presence. Amen, absolutely. That may have symbolized that. It definitely, though, represented the continual unbroken worship of God that the angels and all of creation except for us give God every day. It's sort of this continual reminder, right, that every day the sun, moon, and stars do what they're supposed to do, and the dogs and the cats and the fish, but we don't. And all of these things, the, the basins, the tables, all of these things are made out of gold and silver and onyx and all of these other precious metals and stones that God says explicitly in chapter 1 are part of the Garden of Eden. And as a representation of life with God back in the garden, the tabernacle, and then later the temple, showed everyone that this was the place where God's people would be provided for. It's where they would get justice and forgiveness and food and clothing. It's where they would celebrate together and live together and be welcomed together as a community with Jesus. The entirety of Israel's social life, God had running through the temple. Were you hungry? Come to the temple and get food. Were you naked? Come to the temple and get clothing. Were you in need of forgiveness? Come to the temple and get forgiveness. Did you need friendship? Come to the temple. Meet your friends. It all runs through the tabernacle and the temple. It's, a, it's such a powerful image of what life with God is meant to be. Maybe we'll have a sermon series on the tabernacle soon. But anyway, after laying out this vision of the tabernacle in Exodus, God commands Moses in Exodus chapter 25 to tell Israel that they should donate whatever they want to this project. He says, give whatever you want. And that Moses is to use only what's donated. And we're told later on that Moses and Aaron actually had to stop the Israelites from giving to the tabernacle because they had more than enough. They had too much. And I want to be clear, it wasn't just they had it enough to build the tabernacle. It's that they had more than enough to also provide for the people through it, which was, again, an important part of the tabernacle's existence. From there, let's take one more step into the weeds. The reason why I'm convinced Paul applies this to the church is because we Christians are the temple of Jesus today. We're the tabernacle. Because of Christ's forgiveness and the indwelling spirit which makes God present in the life of his people, we are the place where healed life with God in abundant blessing gets to be experienced. That's why we exist.
And that then leads me to my second brief remark back on our verse in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 9, verse 7, which is that the word translated as cheerful is hard to translate into English. We don't have a single word for it. So cheerful is fine, but it frankly doesn't go far enough. The Greek word there is actually where we get our English word hilarious from. But because words change meaning over time, when Paul was writing, this Greek word did not mean funny or laughing. It meant to be happily, open-handedly generous. So here's the idea where this word would be applied. Uh, when it comes to donating money in the ancient world and in our world, it's basically the same thing, right? Because normally when people donate money, they expect something in return. And you can see that most clearly when people donate millions and billions and trillions of dollars to a building or to an organization, they get their name on the building, right? I give you this money. I get public recognition for what I did. It's all about the children, my name says on the building, right? But it happens small scale too, right? If you or I give someone money, it can often come with the expectation that someday they will need to be generous to us back, right? In return, quid pro quo. I was nice to you, you'll be nice to me, right? It's transactional. To give with hilarity in the ancient world meant you would give without these expectations. You give freely without any public recognition or any expectation that you would get credit for it ever without the expectation of return. That's what the word described. And like in the ancient world and in ours, it's kind of rare. That's why I think they had a word to describe it. And this is precisely how Israel gave to the tabernacle, right? They didn't get their name on the tabernacle. Matt's tent of God, <laughs> right? That's not what happened. They, they got credit for it in the sense that like Jesus recognized it, but they, they didn't get any kind of name. They didn't get more access depending on what they gave. The ones who gave gold didn't get 10% more time with Jesus than the one who gave wood. And they gave cheerfully, happily, it was just, God just said, ask them for what we need and let's see what happens, basically. There was no quotas given. If you read the passage, Moses doesn't say out and say, we need $10,000 for this and $7,000. There's nothing wrong with that, but he didn't do that. They just gave so much that everything was met. Israel gave happily and generously without the expectation of return. They, they gave for the joy of serving God and blessing the people around them. And just to put a super fine point on this, they gave the way God gives. God gives with hilarity. James says that God gives wisdom without strings attached. That is without the expectation of return. God sends his reign on the just and the unjust, on the evil and the good. And to put a super fine point on this, God loved and cared for and fed and partied with Judas, who stole from him regularly and ultimately betrayed him. That's the profound depth of God's hilarity, his cheerful, open-handed giving.
And in the context of Exodus 25, where it talks about God loving the way his people gave, the point is clearly that God loved them the way that we love our friends and our family and our children and our spouses when they are generous and kind. It fills us with joy, right? We, we love it. It makes us happy when our children, our spouses, our friends, when all the people we love, when they look like Jesus. It fills us with an overwhelming sense of, of warmth and, I don't know what to say, love and joy. That's what Paul means when he says that God loves a cheerful giver. When we, as those called the temple of God, the place where, the, where life with God can be experienced, and tasted in real ways as it can nowhere else on earth except in the congregations of Jesus. When it's experienced and tasted in real ways, when we open-handedly, open-heartedly give without strings, Jesus rejoices in us. He is filled with happiness and, and profound gratitude because he sees the Father's love in us. He sees the love that loved Judas in us. But that's not the only reason that Jesus is joyful. He's also joyful because he knows the way that God has designed the world to work. So in verse 6 of our passage, Paul says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about sowing and harvesting, or reaping, as our translation has it. It just means to, to go and get the crops, kids. That's all it means. And I think the point of the image throughout the Bible is this. You give a gift to God in faith, trusting that he will do what only he can do, which is bring life from it. And then when he does, you and a bunch of other people get to taste the good life that God brings out of it. That's why God applies this logic to the actual labor of farming in the Garden of Eden, right? Working the garden, which is God's command to Adam, involves planting seeds and then waiting for God to bring them to life and thus bring blessing to Adam and Eve and to everything in creation. It's why Jesus applies this logic very specifically to preaching the gospel, you and I, we speak about Jesus in faith that God will bless it and bring it to life in that person, in his own time and in his own way as he does with seeds. Right? We plant and then we wait for God to bring a harvest. It's why God applies it also to forgiveness and to trust in Proverbs how sometimes you have to plant the seed of forgiveness, if you will, in the, your life and relationships waiting to reap reconciliation in a renewed friendship. He applies it also, doesn't he, to the life of faith generally. When we live with Jesus, we entrust ourselves to God. We are planted in Jesus, if you will. And then we look forward to when we get to reap the harvest of life that God pours into us. And Jesus also applies this to money, and not just here. In Jesus' parables, like the parable of the talents, which is about money, 
A talent is a unit of money. Jesus will talk about how he, how God reaps where he did not sow and harvests and fields that he did not plant. The point being that no matter how God distributes his wealth in the world, he uses it for his kingdom and his blessings. And his church needs to understand that our money should be used for building up the kingdom of God. That's one of the things he's given us. That's what the, one of the things the parable of the talents is about. That's probably another sermon you all want to hear. We can do that uh, one of these days. Uh, so from Jesus' own ministry and from the Old Testament, Paul understands that if we give our money to Jesus' purposes with cheerfulness, we will reap abundant joy and blessing. But if we don't, we will not reap as abundantly as we could. So when Paul talks about sowing sparingly, the Greek word used to talk about people who give that way is equivalent to our English character, Scrooge. I think we should just translate it this way. Uh, if you give like a Scrooge, you will reap like a Scrooge, is what Paul is saying. But if you sow bountifully, and the word there means to give lots of gifts. So if you sow in a way that uh, you want to have extra to give to as many people as possible, not just for yourself, but for others. You will reap not just for yourself, but also for others. If you sow wanting to bless others, you will reap in a way that blesses others. And what Paul is calling us to do is act in a way that entrusts our wealth to Jesus without strings, cheerfully, because Jesus finds great joy in us acting like the Father and because Jesus will bring bountiful gifts of joy to others through us. This is, this is not on my notes, but I'm going to say this anyway. This is the opposite of health and wealth. Health and wealth says, give to God so you can get as much as you want. This is Jesus saying, give to God so others can get lots of stuff from you. <laughs> right? It's literally about multiplying grace, multiplying God's gifts, his, his goodness to as many people as are possible in our lives. And then Paul goes on to assure us that the Father has already blessed us with the ability to give this way, which is always a fear we have, right? Like, how can I give generously when I only have this much? Well, Paul says in verse 8, And God, who is able to make all grace abound to you, so that have having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So going back to Exodus for a second, God knew that he was going to call upon Israel to build the tabernacle through their donations, right? God knew that. When God did that, did Israel have to go and mine for gold and chop down forests and dye fabric blue? And the answer is no. When God saved them out of Egypt, God saved them with everything that they would need for this task. It was part of their salvation, you see. And I think this is behind what, God is, what Paul is saying here. God is able to make every kind of gift abound to us so that no matter when he calls upon us to share freely, we can do something to help. Now, that does not mean that we can meet every need and satisfy every desire. We are not God, in case you have not noticed. Um, that's ridiculous, right? No one person in Israel, 
met the demands of the tabernacle. Just like no one person in Israel fed all the poor in the congregation of Jesus. But together, as they gave what they could, cheerfully, as they sowed these seeds in faith, God reaped a harvest among them. God provided for the poor in their midst. God clothed them and fed them. God healed them. God employed them. God took care of them. See, God has designed the world and has chosen to live in this world in such a way that our good works, as Paul calls them in verse 8, done by faith in Jesus, which are often small and seem to help so very little, like God uses them to bring life with Jesus to those around us. And this is why Paul uh, quotes from Psalm 112, verse 9. And I want to read all of Psalm 112, and then I will make one comment on the passage. So this is Psalm 112. I need to read it because I know when I said that he there is not God, it's the righteous person who gives to God, about half of you were like, no way is that right. That's your interpretation. It's not. There, listen. Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. I think now it's probably clear that Paul chooses this psalm and this verse from the psalm because it's all about how the person who walks with God in faith and obeys his commands and shows that faith by using his wealth to generously bless others. Uh, it's all, that's what it's all about. Now, obviously, he, this man is not giving all of his money away. That sort of St. Francis of Assisi ideal of like giving up all your money and walking out from the church naked until someone gives you clothing, which is the story of how he became St. Francis. Like, that is not biblical. It's actually, according to the preacher in Ecclesiastes, a sinful rejection of God's blessings in your life. Because God also gives us money in order to care for us too, right? And to give us enjoyment. But clearly, the righteous man in Psalm 112 is the man who gives generously and cheerfully as God commands him. He gives in faith. And the result of that generous, cheerful life of God is a family that loves him, a society and a community that loves him because it's been changed by the way this person has used money to bless other people in Jesus' name. That's what his righteousness endures forever means. Through this person's generosity, the poor in his community are blessed and they live. 
and I think they live with God in faith because this righteous person has given to them in Jesus' name and not taken the credit for himself. And isn't this exactly why Paul goes on to say in verses 10 through 11, 11 and here we're coming to the end, uh, verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and blood for bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You can trust God to provide for you in such a way that generosity is always available in some degree to you just like the Israelites in Exodus. And God does this because he wants us to be able to practice that form of righteousness. He wants us to be able to do this good deed. Jesus wants to watch us sow the seeds of generosity and faith, giving to others in his name, so that he can rejoice in our love and produce abundant life through it. And that brings us to our final point. God's plan to harvest praise. And I don't want to go too long here, but I do want to point out just three things that God harvests explicitly in our passage through our offerings. The first, we just read from verse 11, but I'll read it again so you can hear it. He says, verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Through our generous giving, that is giving by faith in Jesus' name, God produces thanksgiving to himself. The Bible knows that uh, when you're poor or needy or hungry or sick or lonely, that a common thought is God has abandoned me or he's angry with me or he hates me, or maybe he just doesn't think about me. But what happens when someone comes to you and says, hey, I want to help you? What happens when an entire church represented by the deacons or the pastor or the elders, what happens when they go to someone and say, like, Jesus wants to help you? Here, let us help you. Don't you thank God? Even, even if you help people who don't attend church or believe in God, I know for a fact that people that we have helped here at Grace, in Jesus' name, people who don't have anything really to do with the church at all, those people will talk about how sometimes they pray. And I'll say, interesting, um, why is that? And the answer I've gotten, I'm paraphrasing here as well, since you've helped me, and you always very clear you're doing it because Jesus wants to show us love. It made me think that if there's a God, maybe he's paying attention to me and will hear me. That is thanksgiving to God. And it opens a door, potentially, to faith in God through the generosity of Christ's church. And Christians have the same feeling too, right? When you're in need and the church steps in in Jesus' name, you know, you feel that God is with you. It connects us together to the love and care of Christ in very tangible ways, which is why Paul says in verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, although it is, right? Is not only supplying the needs of the saints, 
but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So God harvests thanksgiving from our care of the poor in Jesus' name. He also harvests on our behalf a belief in our faith in Jesus. That's the first half of verse 13. By their approval, verse 13, of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. We talked about how the church is the temple of God. Right? Jesus wants the world to know that he lives with his people. But we also know that in some congregations, it can be hard to figure out where God is living exactly. And we can think, how do I know that Jesus is really there? How do I know that they know him? One answer that we get here is that by giving to the needy and to the poor in our church and in our communities, people inside and outside the church will say, well, maybe they probably do know Jesus because they are obeying and living for Jesus. You see, giving to the needy and to the poor is connected to bringing the lost into the church. It helps them see our obedience, and in that it helps them experience the love of Christ as he is found here. And in this way, Paul says, it brings glory to God. So from our giving, God reaps a harvest of thanks. He reaps a harvest of gospel fruit. He also reaps prayer. And this is the last half of verse 13 and verse 14. I'm going to start at the beginning of verse 13 for clarity. Uh, By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. When we help meet the needs of Christians, and uh, here we can say especially Christians in other congregations like we have just done in the way we gave to uh, Elizabeth Murray, they are moved to respond with prayers for us. Our physical generosity is reciprocated with their spiritual generosity. They thank God for us, and they pray for us. And thus, together, this becomes a way the church grows in unity and in love. And this is why Paul ends as he does in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What is his inexpressible gift? Well, it seems to me it's all the things Jesus gives us when we generously give our money to the kingdom of God cheerfully. We get the blessing of practicing righteousness and of doing a good work. We get the blessing of helping Jesus impact the world and grow the kingdom. We get the blessing of Jesus' joy as he watches us love those around us in the way that he himself loves us. We get the blessing of helping others thank God for his care and attention and knowing that he is present in their lives. We get the blessing of opening the doors of the kingdom to unbelievers and of provoking other Christians to care about us and to pray for us. I think this is an amazing section of Scripture. Um, It is fundamentally shaped and reshaped how I think about giving and what it is and what it does in the Christian's life. And I, I hope 
this morning it's started to do the same for you. Uh, And I hope we all prayerfully ask Jesus to help us give with hilarity, that is cheerfully, and to sow our giving in faith and to ask him to show us the bountiful blessings that he will reap for us in our communities and in our churches as we do this in his name. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for making us into your temple and for honoring us with being the place where people can taste your goodness and experience renewed life with you. Father, we want to be a purer expression of that life than we have yet been. And so please help us to grow in giving cheerfully, openly, joyfully to your kingdom. Help us to trust you uh, with our giving. Help us to see the ways in which you have equipped us to give. And please also show us where and how to use the money that we've collected in your name so that you would be honored and glorified in our body, in our communities, and in the larger church. And Father, we ask as well that you would open our eyes to see the way in which you are bringing fruit out of the small offerings we have given so that we can grow in thanksgiving to you and enjoy in what you are doing through us and for us in Christ. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.